Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Crucial Talks podcast. I'm your host, Mike Sadam. We are a relatively young country, and we have our beginnings in one of the ultimate in-group, out-group battles in history. Our battle for independence, when we were a fledgling British colony, established a lot of the culture we have in this country today, and definitely established some of the rights we protect today. And since it's close to Christmas, you can sing this to the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer tune if you like. You've heard of George Washington and Ben Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, Paul Revere and Thomas Paine, and Patrick Henry and Samuel Adams. But do you recall one of the least famous revolutionaries of all? And that would be James Otis. Let's hear a little bit about who James Otis was, and then we'll talk a little bit about his story. James Otis was one of the early patriots here in Boston. He was a, a government lawyer. He was asked to argue on behalf of a law called the Writs of Assistance, but instead of arguing for it, he quit his government job and argued against it. Now, the Writs of Assistance were a lot like a modern-day search warrant, but they required very little in the way of probable cause. They could search anyone at any time during the day. Nighttime was considered rude. And they were good until six months after the death of the king who signed them in the first place. As you can imagine, we were not very happy with these. Now, James Otis argued against the writs of assistance for free on behalf of a group of merchants here in Boston. The important thing he said was, taxation without representation is tyranny. At the age of 58 in 1783, he stepped out onto a balcony during a thunderstorm and he raged at the heavens. And the heavens, having heard quite enough about James Otis, raged back. And poor James Otis was struck by lightning for the second time. Only this time it killed him. So James Otis was a Boston lawyer. He was most likely bipolar, and he believed he would be killed by lightning. This is an interesting tidbit. Not only did he believe he would be killed by lightning, he was actually struck by lightning twice. Now to me, it would make sense if his belief on how he would be killed followed that first lightning strike, but I'm not sure when he actually started to believe that. So on May 23rd, 1783, he was struck by the second bolt of lightning, and you guessed it, and you heard it, he died. About 22 years before that shocking event, he stood in front of the Superior Court of Massachusetts. You see, at the time, Otis was serving as the Advocate General. And at that time, this means he worked for the British Crown. Then one day, the British decided to impose the writs of assistance on the colonies. It was basically a form of warrantless search and seizure, as you heard from the clip we listened to. Then Otis looked at the writs of assistance. He wholeheartedly disagreed with them. And because of that, Otis resigned from his position. Instead of arguing for the writs of assistance, he stood up on behalf of Boston merchants and argued against the writs of assistance. If you've listened to me before or read any of my work, you know I talk about the roles we play and how those identities that we adopt drive our behavior. James Otis transitioned from one identity to another very rapidly when he resigned from his position and took an opposite stand. His newfound identity, supported by his passion and his ability to make good arguments, resulted in two very important things, according to scholars. The first you've heard of, and although I don't think a complete record of his argument exists, James Otis does get the credit for what we know as taxation without representation. James Otis argued that any tax imposed on citizens without their consent or consent of the representative was wrong. And second, 
This we know for sure because it's recorded in the part of his argument that still exists. And this is a quote. A man's house is his castle, and whilst he is quiet, he is as well guarded as a prince in his castle. John Adams, a founding father and former U.S. president, credited Otis with planting the seed of revolution during Otis's arguments against the writs of assistance. What we see is James Otis was able to galvanize the colonies by using an argument as a goal people could get behind. Merchants, farmers, sailors, and government officials could all work together to oppose taxation without representation and to oppose warrantless searches of their homes. In looking at what James Otis did, we can learn from that. We can learn that he followed a blueprint that worked. He listed how things were at the time. He talked about what England was trying to do and the problems this caused for the colonies. And then he painted a picture of what could be. In our organizations and in our lives, we can do the same thing to discuss goals that we want different people and different groups to work toward. Nancy Duarte, in her TED Talk, gave us, gave us a formula to consider. She based her work on some of the most powerful speeches ever given. Listen to what she says. The way that ideas are conveyed the most effectively is through story. You know, for thousands of years, illiterate generations would pass on their values and their culture from generation to generation, and they would stay intact. So there's something kind of magical about a story structure that makes it so that when it's assembled, it can be ingested and then recalled by the person who's receiving it. We actually physically react when someone's telling us a story. The presenter isn't the hero. The audience is the hero of our idea. It traverses between what is and what could be, what is and what could be. Because what you're trying to do is make the status quo and the normal unappealing. And you're wanting to draw them towards what could be in the future with your idea adopted. So in Nancy's talk, we can see how storytelling is powerful. It lets us visualize what is and what could be. So I recommend listening to her entire TED Talk and also maybe even picking up a couple of the books that she has written. We know that storytelling is powerful because people are social animals that make decisions based on emotion, and stories can create these emotions within us. In addition to that, we know that superordinate goals are powerful because they can get groups, even groups that were previously in conflict with each other, to work together. These types of goals, the goals that cannot be achieved by one group alone, they tend to create cooperation. They tend to uh, create a a capacity to collaborate. In addition, multiple superordinate goals that require a level of cooperation between groups can have a cumulative effect. What this means is the more the groups work together, the more long-term cooperation is built and conflict is resolved. So the more multiple superordinate goals we come up with, the more goals that require different groups to work together, the more capacity we build in our organizations and in our lives to collaborate. Based on this information, we can see that superordinate goals don't have to be as big as a colony-wide revolution, but the lessons we can learn from such a goal also work at lower levels. Are two groups in your organization in conflict? If so, can you develop some superordinate goals that they can work on and continue to work on so that they can build this capacity to collaborate? If you can, you can reduce conflict over the long term, and these changes can be long-lasting with the proper introduction of superordinate goals. 
So when we're talking about superordinate goals, we need to think very clearly about what these goals actually mean. They need to be introduced in a way that is not identified with one group or another. That, it, that way it can't be perceived by any one person that is being created to resolve a conflict between groups, but rather it's there as something everybody can work on. It's greater than any conflict that might exist. It's bigger than the different roles people are supposed to play. And it changes competition into cooperation. So it needs to be clearly articulated. And sometimes when we're talking about goals, people throw this word around. But the reality is it's, it's a little bit different than a goal and a vision, right? Vision's a little more broader based. Goals are different because they're more specific. And the specificity necessary to accomplish goals requires clarity. It requires clarity because that way people understand exactly what they're trying to accomplish, but it doesn't limit them to one particular role or another. It fits multiple roles. So what we need to do is think about our operational needs. And sometimes when we do that, we focus too much on the tactical level, the individual things that make up what we do. So the result of doing that is being less effective when trying to get others to work together. But knowing that decision-making exists in the emotional parts of the brain, we know that to, we need to create goals that affect the images people see in their minds and how they feel about those images. So in order to provide a shared goal, try to imagine what it is that you're trying to accomplish and think about what mutual objectives the different groups in your organization can reach. So thinking about the possible future accomplishments helps because it be starts to become real. And as it becomes real in your mind, you're able to communicate about it. You're able to give that vision of the future and how reaching that goal will bring all these different groups together toward that goal. So being thoughtful about a mutual objective helps us consider the needs of everyone while also thinking about the purpose of each of these groups we're trying to manage. So think about the group's future accomplishments, because that will allow you to start thinking about how far into the future do you need to look. Think about it this way. Imagine driving a car. So at the tactical level, you may only have to look for the next exit ramp to make sure you get where you're going. The next step up is an operational level uh, vision. And this may require you to consider, hey, where's construction at on this road? Uh, is it gonna slow me down? What time does commute traffic? hit? Uh, how is that going to affect my drive? And then you get to the strategic level where that may require you to consider the possibility of autonomous vehicles or where new roads may be built in the future. It, it allows you to look way far down the road into the future. So you have the tactical level, the operational level, and the strategic level considerations that you can use when you're thinking about goals. So this works when you're trying to get a group to collaborate. Are you trying to get a group to solve a tactical level problem, such as an emergency? Or are you trying to get a group to discuss recruitment issues that um, the agency might be facing in the next few years? Think about how far in the future you need to look. And then consider the group's purpose. Because if you understand what each group's purpose is, how they understand it and perceive it, you'll start being able to understand the intrinsic motivators that get people to accomplish goals. So people don't tend to rally around a good plan. They don't care how nicely it's written or how long you spent on it or anything like that. 
people tend to rally around a bigger purpose than themselves. And the cause that you create for people to rally around needs to be one that is bigger than any single person. And that the purpose of it goes beyond a single group. So give, a, give your consideration to developing a goal that has purpose behind it. And multiple desires need to be considered, not just yours, not just a leader, not just a single group or single entity or uh, the vagueness of the organization. Our goal then is to create these salient identities, the identities that are important at the time when people are making decisions so that they'll work together. And to do that, people have to care. If they don't care, if they do not see the value in it, if it doesn't hit them emotionally, they're not as apt to make those decisions in a collaborative manner. So what we've talked about today is a way to, to address um, cooperation between groups. What we've talked about is a method of storytelling that takes into account future goals and using that, that future casting, using that vision of that goal that they can accomplish to get people to work collaboratively together. And that's the power of storytelling, and that's the power of superordinate goals, getting people to cooperate, working toward a common purpose that everybody can get behind. So thank you again for listening to this podcast. I've been doing this for about two months now, and would love to continue to build the, the people listening to it and build a community of practitioners that we can all work together to succeed and learn from each other. So if you can, I would love it if you could leave a, a review um, if you could rate it, and if you could please share it, that would be great. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any other questions or need to contact me, please visit the Crucial Talks website at crucialtalks.com. And there are links there to connect with me via email or on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. I hope you have a great week. I know Christmas is coming up, so hopefully you're going to have some downtime, be some time to spend with your family, some time to enjoy with friends. And remember... If we want to understand behavior, we need to understand what drives people. Have a great week.